We're picking back up in Ruth chapter 4. We had a bit of a break last week and everything was on pause. So I just want to briefly bring you back up to speed with what's been happening in the book of Ruth and what we've tracked in the story so far. And the main thing that we want to focus in on right now is the fact that Naomi set Ruth up on something of a bizarre quest to present herself as a bride to Boaz in an unconventional way. So Naomi has sent Ruth to the threshing floor in the middle of the night. She uncovers Boaz's legs and she lays down beside him. He wakes up and in our modern vernacular, we would say he freaked out. He, he is scared, he's trembling, and asks, who are you? He learns who she is, and she essentially proposes to him. So in my Greek class at, at the school I teach at this week, we were translating this text, and I was trying to explain this to, to the high school kids. And, and the best way I could think of to describe what was going on would be if some single lady went up to a guy and said, hey, I'm taking you to the mall, And then they get there and she leads him to the jewelry section and says, buy me that ring. And by the way, my, you know, my mother-in-law from my previous marriage, she's a widow too. And if you're going to marry me, you've got to take care of her. So we're a package deal here. You've got to take care of her and you need to marry me. Um, You prayed that the Lord would, would bring refuge to me while you're going to be that refuge. This is daring and a little bit presumptuous, even in our culture and and even more so in theirs. Boaz responds remarkably with the simple words that he would do whatever she asked him to do. So we see in Boaz a guy who is going to act on behalf of this Moabite woman and her her widowed mother-in-law to provide for them and to protect them. But he introduces a problem. And the problem is that there's another redeemer. There's another guy who has first rights to Naomi's land. So for him to provide for Naomi and to act as the redeemer, it would be his responsibility to purchase the land of Naomi's dead husband. And there's another guy, though, who has first dibs. So this is going to be a significant problem for Boaz to do everything that Ruth has requested of him. But at the end, when when Ruth goes back and tells Naomi what happened, she said, Just sit down, relax, because Boaz, being a man of noble character, isn't going to rest until he's come to some resolution. So that's where we ended last time we we discussed the book of Ruth. So we're picking up here in in chapter four, and we're going to see what Boaz is going to do to bring resolution to the situation. Now, I think it's interesting that we don't hear another word uttered from either Naomi or Ruth the rest of the story. I, I don't know what we should take away from this totally until we get to the end of chapter four where I have a few ideas, but I just want to point out that from here on, Boaz is the main actor. Boaz is the one who's going to take initiative. So in chapter one, Ruth was taking an in- the initiative to make this pledge to Naomi. And then in chapter three, Naomi is taking the initiative to set in this 
the sequence of events that will lead to this marriage proposal. And now Boaz is taking the initiative to secure redemption and prosperity for these two ladies. So in Ruth 4.1, Boaz went to the gate of the town and he sat down there. And this is maybe a bit unfamiliar to us, but essentially this gate of the city would function much like our city hall would in a way. Maybe that's the closest we can approximate to it, but legal and important social proceedings would take place at this city gate and the elders of the city would be gathered there. This is, this is where the who's who of the city is going to be ruling over life, life in the town. So Boaz goes to the gate and he sits down here. And, and in that action, Boaz is taking the initiative in a way that he hasn't up to this point. Now, we might wonder, why didn't Boaz propose to Ruth, to put it in our vernacular? Or why didn't Boaz go out of his way to secure the rights to redemption earlier on? And I, I don't think we should be too hard on Boaz for not taking the initiative earlier. One reason is that there is this other redeemer who should have maybe been taking this initiative. So Boaz is just acting wisely. He's acting according to his responsibilities. So we shouldn't fault him in that way. But then secondly, some have suggested that Ruth may have and obviously this is speculation with the suggestions and the mayhaps, Ruth might have just been dressed as a widow in mourning from the death of her husband to this point, And she may have continued on in that way until Naomi instructed her to wash and change and, and present herself as a bride. So in that way, Boaz might be off the hook here because he's, he's just recognizing and that she's in this period of mourning. Whatever the case might be, I, I don't think that we should look down on Boaz for not acting sooner. And instead, as he is responding to these events, I think he's responding with wisdom and kindness. And now he's going to take the initiative at the exact right moment. So he's sitting at the gate and, and then he is looking out. And soon it says the family redeemer Boaz had spoken about came by and Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Now, depending on the translation that you're looking at, if you're looking at the one I am, there's a little footnote there and it renders the verse. And Boaz said, come over here, Mr. So-and-so. And different English translations deal with this in different ways. But there's this kind of rhyming kind of fill-in phrase that, that replaces the name of this redeemer. And the point is that the storyteller doesn't want us to know this guy's name. Surely Boaz knew this guy's name. He didn't call out, hey, what's your bucket? Come over here. Or so, you know, he, he knew this guy. He's a relative. He knows of his existence. And in, in multiple places in the Old Testament where the author doesn't want to give specifics about something, they use this kind of rhyming nonsensical phrase and just as a place filler. And there's going to be some literary and theological significance here. And I think the, the main one is that this guy is not going to be remembered by name in, in the biblical history. We do this 
to people in our news accounts that we don't want to remember or even give them the honor of having their name named in a news article. So that's a common practice now. If there's a school shooting or something or some act of domestic terrorism, very often these days, publishers of the newspaper won't put that individual's name in the paper. And it's denying that individual that 15 minutes of fame. Well, I think that's what this author is doing. This storyteller is denying this other redeemer any, any name that will go on in perpetuity in Israel's history. Now, I, I want to pause also and just give a hermeneutical reflection or an interpretive reflection on how we are to be reading the Bible. We might if we're going to be sticklers, say that the storyteller is no longer being historically accurate because he's changed the details of, of what happened. You know, so if we want to be kind of cynical towards this storyteller or maybe even cynical towards biblical authority or something like that, we might say, Boaz likely called this guy out by name. Now we have this storyteller changing the details. He's, he's destroying what actually happened and it's therefore no longer reliable. This is a way I think that, that some cynics of the Bible might look at the way historical accounts are depicted in the Old Testament. And on the other side, you know, usually those are liberals who don't want to affirm the Bible as God's authoritative word. On the other side, there are maybe what I would refer to as hyper-conservatives who would demand that this is actually what Boaz said. And every time there's a biblical history recorded, it's recorded exactly as it happened, as if it's a video camera just recording the events that took place. Well, we need to be better readers of the Bible than either of those sides. So what I want to talk about for a moment is the way we should read biblical narrative. First, as we're reading biblical narratives, we need to understand that the narrator or the storyteller or the historian is giving an interpretation of events. There is no such thing as a bare historical narrative that's just the facts. That's impossible. Now, we, we know this by experience. If you're reading the newspaper, and if, if you're reading something put out by Fox News over against something put out by NPR, whoever you're talking to about the authority of the record of events in, in those news articles, they're going to question, well, what news source put this out? Is this a, a, a Republican news source or a Democrat news source? And, and they're going to say that it's impossible to have a bare record of the fact and that the one relaying the record of events is also interpreting the events. Do you see what I mean here? We, we understand intuitively in the day-to-day -day life that it's impossible to provide a bare record of just the facts of just what happened. And then as we expand beyond that to our history books, we recognize that individuals and publishing companies writing history books are all doing so from a particular angle, from a particular vantage point, and considering just a set of particular data. They can't give us just the pure facts of history. They're giving us an interpretation of the events of history. 
And then as more historical research is done and more archaeological sites are dug up, we have more data to deal with and we factor that in and we try to understand what's going on, but we can only do so from a particular vantage point. Now, taking those realities and then connecting them to the biblical text, we understand that on one hand, in historical narrative, history writing is happening and history interpretation is happening at the same time. But it's of even greater significance when it occurs in the biblical text because theological points are also being made. So the storyteller is interpreting the events and trying to draw out whatever theological significance that individual sees in these events. We see this in the Gospels, for instance. We have four Gospels, and they're the same events told from slightly different perspectives, drawing out slightly different implications. Well, that's what's going on here in the book of Ruth. And whether you're reading Genesis or Ruth or the Gospels, when historical narratives are being given, we need to understand that these are interpretations of events. They're not just windows on events. And if we can start to understand that events are not self-interpreting and self-interpreting and in that we don't have a video camera scene going on here, then we're going to be able to better understand what the storyteller is driving us toward. This also means then that we need to be more attentive readers. We, we need to pay attention to the details of the text. And when something odd shows up, like this rhyming no name, where an individual's name is now erased from history, you might say revisionist history is happening here. We, we want to pick up on what the storyteller is trying to do with that act by interpreting the events in this way. What is the storyteller trying to get across? Okay, we're, we're going to, as we observe more of the story, start to see what the storyteller might be doing. But already, I think we can equate it to what we do in news reports where we don't want to give anyone a, a, a lasting representation in history. This guy is being written out of Israel's history. And more importantly, he's being written out of God's story. His name doesn't even get to exist. Orpah, at least, her name is in the story. Well, this guy's name is not going to be recorded. More, more on that later, but it's important for us just as we're learning to become better readers of the Bible to understand that the record of history is an interpretation of those events. It's not a bare window on events. That's, that's impossible to do. Okay, so Boaz calls to this guy, Mr. So-and-so, we might say, to come over and sit down. So this guy went over and sat down. Then Boaz took 10 men of the town's elders and said, sit here, and they sat down. Why 10 exactly? We don't know. Maybe, maybe that was a number required for legal witnesses for this sort of a conversation. We aren't quite sure, but, but what's being set up here is a formal, legally binding proceeding. You have the, the two parties involved, and now you have what could essentially be functioning as the judge, jury, and the executioner of the decision gathered with these witnesses of these 10 elders of the town. So Boaz has convened this group, and he's indicated that there's official business at hand. So 
before them all in this legal situation, he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should inform you, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people if you want to redeem it. Do it. But if you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know because there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. So we, we need to have some explanation of what's going on here. And some of that came in what Josh read from the book of Leviticus. We just understand that in dealing with issues of property rights, there are both theological and legal complexities that are hard to tease out. And, and we also need to understand that local customs can arise as well that kind of build on top of the specific biblical law, old covenant law that we observe in the book of Leviticus. But what, what is happening here is that the sale of Elimelech's property is mentioned for the very first time. So as, as far as we can guess, this property has come under the ownership of Naomi following the death of her husband and her sons. And apparently, Naomi is the one who has the claim to this property. She owns it. There are other precedents in the Old Testament and in that time where women could own property, particularly from their deceased husband. Normally, the process would be if husband dies, then that property doesn't now belong to the widow. It belongs to the sons. But if the sons die, then the widow can own the property. So Naomi owns this property. And um, she, she has been gone for over a decade. She comes back and we can imagine that this field, this property was either sold when this family left to go to Moab or now that the harvest is over, Naomi is realizing I've got to have money so I can survive. So my field needs to be put up for sale. Anyone can buy this thing but it's going to be the Redeemer's obligation to buy it back eventually to bring it back into the family line because Israel believes that this land ultimately belongs to God. Josh read that in Leviticus. So there's this theological motivation for keeping the, the land in the family. So this more kind of extended family has first rights to it when the more narrow family dies out. Well, by every indication, once Naomi dies, that family line has died out. So this property will now go essentially to the next redeemer. Boaz is dealing with this next redeemer, but Boaz wants to get the property. He's the third ring out. Okay. So this is a little bit complex, but the main point is that this land is up for sale and with no other offspring of Naomi to take it, this redeemer has first right to increase his, his property. Well, this is a really low risk for this redeemer, right? This is why he can be approached just off the cuff and he can be expected to make a decision here. The decision is simple. This property is now going to be in my family line for per in perpetuity if I buy it. Naomi has no other relatives who can take this back. So whether it's the year of Jubilee or a, a Sabbath year or anything else, this is a really safe investment. I'll, I'll 
put out some cash and buy this property and I'll be able to grow harvests on this property and I'll become wealthy because of it. And now it's added to my family inheritance. So this guy answers, I want to redeem it. You know, it's a no brainer. Buy the property. It makes sense. Now, if we're looking at Boaz as a salesman here, we're thinking he made a big mistake. He tipped his hand and said, I, I want to make you aware of this. And if you don't want it, tell me, because I want it. Well, that, as soon as someone else wants something, the, the demand is really raised, okay? So as a salesman, we might think, Boaz, you just messed up here. And, and the guy is going to take the property now. And, you know, but Boaz didn't mess up. Boaz didn't make a mistake. Instead, Boaz is being a crafty guy, all right? He has just laid out here, unknown to this other redeemer, a bait and switch situation, okay? So a good salesman, you know, when you want to sell the thing is going to make a nice spiel. And then he's gonna have a, but wait, there's more. And, and thrown into this product you're gonna purchase, you're also going to get a set of hot pads or, or whatever it is. You know, there's something to sweeten the deal. And it's only $19.99 for three months. You know, if you want to sell it, the next thing you add is going to be something positive. Well, Boaz has a, but wait, there's more that's about to come. And it's going to be a bait and switch. And it's not going to sweeten the deal. It's going to kind of make the deal repulsive. Now, I, I think it's worth reflecting on this because I think we could describe Boaz here as cunning or crafty or shrewd. And generally speaking, we would attribute those characteristics to a dirtbag, not, not to a righteous noble man. Well, we should interpret Boaz as a righteous noble man because the storyteller told us to in chapter two, verse one. He's a man of noble character. So we're about to observe this man of noble character be crafty and shrewd and cunning and wise. Okay? There, there are good reasons these adjectives are thought of negatively. And that's because that's how the serpent is described in Genesis 3.1. This was the most cunning or crafty of all the wild animals that the Lord had created. However, in Proverbs, this word that's the Hebrew word for crafty that's used there shows up a number of times in the Old Testament, primarily in Proverbs and almost always in a positive way. So I want to read two Proverbs where this word shows up and I want to suggest that Boaz is putting this on display. In Proverbs 14, 18, the, the proverb reads, the inexperienced inherit foolishness but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. And, and so the, there's this idea that there, the word translated inexperienced here, I think is going to relate to someone who fails to be crafty. That, that individual is only going to inherit foolishness. We're going to see a guy who, who's worried about his inheritance down the road. But the sensible or, or the crafty are crowned with knowledge. Well, Boaz, I think, is this guy who's crowned with knowledge. He's a crafty guy crowned with knowledge. But there's one that I think is even more stark. In Proverbs 12, 23, the text reads, a shrewd person conceals knowledge. That's the same Hebrew word that's used for crafty or cunning or shrewd. A shrewd person conceals knowledge, but a foolish heart publicizes stupidity. 
Well, Boaz is entering into this legal proceeding, concealing some knowledge. He's, he's holding back some of the information that's part of this deal, and he's going to allow that to spring the trap on this bait and switch to get what he's aiming for. Now, I, I think that as we get into the New Testament, we see some other individuals acting in a shrewd, cunning, crafty sort of way. I think the main one is Jesus as he's dealing with all of these people who are out to get him. But that's exactly what he instructs his disciples to do. He says to be as shrewd or as cunning or as crafty as serpents and harmless as doves. So starting in the Old Testament and moving into the New, we get this idea that God does not want his people to be naive novices who just respond to the flow of the tide instead of going out there with wisdom and shrewdness and craftiness to secure the aims and objective of God and his kingdom. I, th- I think as we reflect on this, it sort of stamps out a naive ethic that says Christians should be naive people who are not looking for the loopholes to advance the kingdom of the Lord. Now, I think there's a guy who most of us know because he's been helping us out with our building project who I think embodies this in the modern day. <laughs> there's this, this guy named Rocky Ranch who's an elder at Eden who has been helping us get the best deals on contractors and work through purchase agreements and all these sorts of things. And I know that Rocky sits up at night working through what are all the potential loopholes that are here and how can we use those to advance the kingdom of the Lord and protect this church from falling into a trap from someone else who's being cunning and crafty to their own ends. I, I think that Rocky is, you know, w- with all the weaknesses that he has, Rocky exhibits for us a Boaz-like character. And for those of you who have the privilege of working with him in these building meetings and and who will work with him down the road, I think you should observe Rocky's life. I I think you see in that guy a Boaz. I've I've thought that many times as I've read the, the book of Ruth, particularly when Naomi tells Ruth just to rest because Boaz isn't going to rest till he's found resolution. Well, that's Rocky. He, he's going after it. He, and, and I think he is a good example for us. He's a, an older man of the Lord. So especially us younger men, I think we need to look to guys like Rocky and guys like Boaz and learn from them. Well, Bo, Boaz here is a cunning, crafty guy, and he's about to spring a trap here. And, and he's demonstrating, I think, what it looks like for someone to embody the wisdom of the Lord and, and proceed to secure God's redemption for his people. So then Boaz says in this, but wait, there's more part of the equation in verse five, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man to perpetuate the man's name on his property. So here's here's the spring in the trap, the switch. He's telling this guy, On the day that you purchase this property, you need to know that this is a package deal. You also, as part of one of the contingencies in in this purchase agreement, essentially, you also have to marry Ruth. And you need to try to have kids with Ruth because even though the law of leveret marriage doesn't apply, part of this purchase agreement is is kind of taking on the spirit of that law and you need to have a kid with Ruth and that kid is going to get this property that you buy back someday. 
So it's not going to stay in your family line. It's going to go back to Naomi's family line. Well, that throws a wrench in the plans. It's no longer a clear-cut deal. Prior to that, it was just a simple, I'm, I'm getting some land and it's going to be a moneymaker for me for the rest of my life and then for my children. Well, now it might be a moneymaker for a little bit, but it's going, it's going to this other, other guy's family line. And even beyond that, beyond that reality is the fact that this guy is now being called on to marry somebody. It's not just a business agreement anymore. This is a whole of life, all-encompassing sort of decision. Now, this guy might have had good reasons for not wanting to marry Ruth. I, I think it's interesting that Boaz describes her as Ruth the Moabitess. That would be even more off-putting. Maybe this guy is recalling the, the law of the Lord that says that you cannot marry Moabites. Maybe he's recalling the law that says a, a Moabite is not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. So maybe this guy is looking at this and just saying, I cannot, as a righteous, upstanding member of this society, marry that lady. Whatever the case is, and who knows, maybe this guy had, had someone he's interested in and, and he, he wants to marry someone else. Whatever the case is, this makes the deal a lot more complicated. So... He, he replies, I can't redeem it myself or I will ruin my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption because I can't redeem it. So that's this guy's response. This is going to be too costly for him. Now, it's a bit mysterious about what this guy means, about it ruining his inheritance. We, we don't totally know. He doesn't explain anything other than that. He just says, it's going to ruin my inheritance. We, we can only guess what it means. But I, I think that I, I can take a, take a stab at it. But again, this is one of those times where I just need to say, I can't find someone else arguing for this right now. Maybe someone is. So, so this is not standing with the authority of anyone else. This is just a speculation. I think if we're, if we're considering the situation, this other redeemer knows who Ruth is as well. He knows that she's a, a lady of noble character, but he also knows that this lady has been married before and that for a decade, they had no children. That he, he I think, is looking at this lady as an infertile woman. You know, particularly in that day, if a couple wasn't having children, it would just be assumed there's something wrong with the wife. You know, she, she's the problem. That's why Abraham took on Hagar, right? He, he took on this other lady. It's not a problem with the guy. It's always a problem with the lady. I, I think, <laughs> according to the knowledge of that day, I, I think he's saying, so what if I get this property and, and I have my property, if I also have to marry this infertile woman and we don't have kids, well then as soon as I die, my property, all of it is up for grabs for you, Boaz. You're the next re redeemer. You're going to take me for everything I've got because my family line is going to be gone. The, this lady's infertile. So I think that's what he means by Marriage to Ruth would put his inheritance in jeopardy. I, I think that's what's going on. So I think as this guy's taking a step back, 
He's not elaborating on that anymore. And I would imagine if I, if I were imagining what he's thinking, he's thinking, I'll let Boaz marry this infertile lady and eventually I'll get his land too. I just need to wait a little while. This is an older guy. He's going to die soon without kids and I'm, I'm going to get all the more. So I'm not going to risk sacrificing anything. I stand to gain everything. I, I think that's what's just happened in, in this conversation. So he turns over the right of redemption to Boaz. And, and um, if, if you recall the explanation, Boaz said, you need to marry this lady so that the name of the deceased will be carried on forever. Well, because this guy was unwilling to do that, or even to take a stab at doing that, his name is forgotten in Israel forever. So I, I think our storyteller is trying to make a theological point. Those who are unwilling to embody the hesed of the Lord, the loving kindness of the Lord, those who are unwilling to participate in the act of redemption, even when it costs them, end up getting written out of God's story. That happened to Orpah, and now it's happened to this other guy. So where Orpah is standing as a foil or a contrast figure for Ruth. This other redeemer is standing as a contrast figure for Boaz. And there's a bit of foreshadowing that's there already. And that is that even though Boaz's intentions are to carry out the spirit of leveret marriage and, and sacrifice his family name in, in allowing this other family name to go on, uh, there, there's going to be a family name that's remembered, and it's actually going to be Boaz's family name. So when we get to the genealogy at the end, we don't hear Elimelech's name or Malon's name. We get Boaz's name because Boaz was willing to make someone else's name great in the land of Israel. I'll pick up on this again as we get down to that section, but it's foreshadowed here is one guy's name is, is totally obliterated and Boaz's name is going to stand. Now we then get to verse seven, uh, an explanatory note. I'm just going to read it and go on and I'll, I'll circle back to a few reflections on that. At an earlier point in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. So this redeemer is removing his sandal. He's making this legal declaration that Boaz owns the rights to redemption. This is now his turf. It's his territory. Now, this is different than the removal of the sandal in Deuteronomy, I think, 25 with respect to leveret marriage. It sounds similar, but it's different. So if your study Bible notes are connecting them, don't connect them. In, in the Deuteronomy case, the widow would remove the sandal and then spit in the guy's face, and his, his family name would become the, the family who failed to secure the rights of leveret marriage. You know, it's, a, it's similar, but it's different. So use discretion in reading your study Bible note. All it is here is the way that a, a legal declaration is made, and that's what's happened. Now, because the storyteller in such a short book 
actually has a relatively long explanation of this detail. I think it's worth us reflecting on and trying to get into the worldview of the biblical authors a little bit more. This author is describing the joining of symbol and word to create a new reality. And in the minds of the biblical authors and in the worldview of that day, there was this idea and understanding of both words and symbols as world-forming acts. That is to say, words and symbols create a new reality, particularly when they're joined together. We see this happening in, in this story. The symbol, sandal being removed, and word are joined to create a new reality. Now, Boaz is the guy who is the, the true redeemer. We, uh, on one level, in our culture, recognize this too. We just tend to limit it to a handful of occasions. So we, we observe this in wedding ceremonies, for instance. We believe that when symbols of wedding rings are exchanged combined with words of vows and that promise of I do, we say that those symbols and those words create a new reality. Where before there was just a guy and a girl, we have now a husband and a wife because words and symbols are joined together. Okay, that, that's one example where this happens. Another example of this happening is with something as simple as a hug. A hug is really a symbolic act. A hug symbolizes things like warmth and affection and security. But when you hug somebody, you're also creating that reality. You know, unless you're doing it disingenuously, unless you're doing it without faith and trust. Okay, when, when, they're, when two people come together and hug, it's not just an empty symbol, but it's a new reality that's there. That, that's why hugs are important. That's why handshakes are important. These sort of things create a reality. That, that's why even in our culture, handshakes function that way. Even if there's not a, a written legal agreement, if people shake hands on something, it's just understood a reality has been formed here. So I've just tried to draw a couple of things from our normal experiences to show that symbols and words are not mere symbols and words, but they actually do something. And that very often, whether in kind of cultural collection or through divine instruction, symbols actually portray what they create. These things work together. I, I think it's good for us to start thinking about words and symbols as reality creators as we read the Bible, because it takes things that we might otherwise say are just arbitrary or meaningless or insignificant, and it gives them the value and the meaning that they actually convey. This helps us when we're reading this removing of the sandal in this situation, but it also helps us as we look at words and symbols in the New Testament. When in, in, in between. So when we think of postures in prayer, like falling on your face or kneeling, well, those are symbolic acts, but they also create the reality that they symbolize. There, there is something that is humbling about kneeling down. I, I don't know if you've experienced that. If Sometimes I, I will pray and I'll kneel down and I'll just think I look like an idiot. Well, there's something humbling there. Well, and, and there's a reason as we read the Bible, these symbolic actions 
are prescribed, it's because they help form that reality in a new and truer way. Well, in a few moments, we are going to participate in a word and symbol of the Lord's Supper. And there's a reason that we don't use apple juice and graham crackers in the Lord's Supper. It's because these are symbols that are intended to help create the reality that they portray. When, when coronavirus hit, I was seeing a lot, a lot of people in shutdown taking communion with things like graham crackers and orange juice. Well, well that's just sad because it's, it's missing what symbols and words actually do. So, but as I mentioned earlier, symbols and words without faith are, are really not creating the reality that they portray. So a, a cold hug that's given in a forced way, that, that's not actually creating security and warmth and affection. And in fact, it might communicate betrayal. Like, like when Judas kisses Jesus, well, that's a, a faithless act and it creates betrayal instead of friendship. Well, I just want to encourage you as you try to bring yourself into the biblical worldview as we participate in ongoing biblical instructions that involve words and symbols to receive them by faith and to participate in the reality that they display. So when you come to the table, we are intended to abide in Christ and remember him. Well, come by faith, receive it by faith. And and it's that act of faith that joins word and symbol that protects from dry, dusty routine. So as much as we might want to criticize a Catholic for coming to the table every week and having no meaning, we don't criticize the regular observance of the bread and the wine. We criticize a lack of faith and a lack of word. So when we come to the table in a few moments, I encourage you to stand in this rich, worldview of the biblical authors and receive these symbols in word by faith. That's somewhat tangential and not the point of the text in Ruth, but that's because it's the entire backdrop to the text. It's the air that the author is breathing. So at at times we just have to pause and reflect on these things, even though they aren't the exact, you know, point of the text, we might say, because without them, the point of the text loses a lot of its significance. Now here, this sandal is removed. This symbol is is communicating the reality that now Boaz has the right to the land. And in, in this removing of sandals, read the Old Testament. It shows up more often than you might think. One obvious situation is as Moses approaches the burning bush and he's to remove his sandals. Why? Because it's holy ground. It doesn't belong to Moses. It's not his. There's something about having your shoes removed that gives up your rights to that property. And, And walking through a property with your sandals on gives you that right to the property. That's why God sent Abraham into the land to walk all over it. Well, now this guy is saying, this is no longer going to be my property. It's your property. And so what has been uttered in word and symbol is now set in stone. So then Boaz looks to all of these other individuals and they stand as witnesses that this reality has now taken place. In reflection on this text, I want to once again highlight the fact that the actions of Boaz to stand in as a redeemer are costly actions. This is the whole point of foils in literature. 
they, they highlight the significance of one person's act by showing the opposite contrast in another. Well, where this other redeemer determined that it was too costly to stand in and act to redeem the land, Boaz takes on that cost willingly. He knows just as well that Ruth might be infertile. He knows just as well that he, he's putting his inheritance in jeopardy. But because he's embodying the kindness of the Lord, he's going to press forward to provide and protect and, and act as a redeemer anyway. And as we observe characters in the scriptures doing this, we get this idea that God smiles upon those who stand as costly redeemers, who act beyond their obligation to, to another. And ultimately, we see that in Jesus Christ, our great redeemer. From one angle, he puts everything in jeopardy by going to the grave. Everything is in jeopardy but he does it anyway. Taking on sin that necessarily churns the wrath of the father upon him is a costly act. It's not merely symbolic or a transfer of numbers on paper, but a genuine reality. And as we look at Christ, our great redeemer, who experienced the most costly act of redemption to provide the greatest benefit for his people, I think we ought to walk in his footsteps and say that as those who have been redeemed, we are going to act beyond our obligation to secure the, the prosperity and flourishing of others. Just as the Israelites were to say, because the Lord redeemed us out of Is Egypt, so too are we to say, because our Lord Jesus redeemed us out of sin, so too do we give of ourselves for one another. And how that looks like in your life right now is going to look radically different than anyone else. So I just want to encourage you, even as you come to the table and remember what Christ has done for you, think this afternoon of how you can, as a follower of Christ, give of yourself beyond your obligation for the good of others.